to hopefully you got some rest as well. You're able to spend some time just celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and enjoying some family. And so I hope that uh, that was my prayer for you last week. Uh, you should have received a program on the way into the service. If you could, go ahead and take that out. On the inside, there's a communication card, a little welcome slip that's attached to the side. And so if you are a first or second time guest with us this morning, you can bring that to our guest services table out in the lobby. After the service, we have a special gift for you this morning. If you're a regular attender, be sure and just put your first and last name on there just to let us know you're here. That would be fantastic. Today we're finishing up our series called A Not-So-White Christmas. And we've been looking at the women and the genealogy of Jesus. We've looked at three of which so far that were involved in sexual immorality. And today we're going to be looking at Ruth the Moabite. And so we've looked at Bathsheba, Tamar, and Rahab. We're going to be looking at Ruth the Moabite today. And that doesn't sound like such a bad thing, but during this time, during this period, Moabites were bad news. They were to be avoided. You know, they were to be looked down upon. They were enemies of the Israelites. In fact, in Numbers chapter 25, we read it's the Moabites that led the people of Israel into sexual immorality and pagan worship. And so they were a bad influence. They were just a bad group of people, and they were supposed to be uh, avoided. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, God says to the people of Israel that no Amorite or Moabite can even enter into the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them were to enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they turned their backs on the Israelites and didn't meet them with bread and water when they came up out of Egypt and because they hired against them Balaam, the son of Beor, to actually curse the Israelites. So they were not supposed to seek their peace, or their prosperity all the days of their lives forever. forever. And so these Moabites were really to be avoided at all costs. They were bad news. And we find one right here, smack in the middle of the genealogy of Jesus along with three sexually immoral people. And so, you know, God never ceases to amaze me. Uh, Just as a part of his plan, uh, the people that he draws into himself to accomplish his plans and his purposes. You know, God uses fallen and broken people to accomplish his plans. And that... uh, is just a miracle, you know, from my perspective. Because if it was me, if I was building a team, I think I'd go for the best of the best, right? It would be like a football team, first-round draft pick. Who do you go after, the worst? No, you go after the best. I mean, if I was going to build a team, I would pick the, the best first, and then you get the people in the middle that are okay, and then you get the people that are at the last to be picked, right? That's where God is. You know, he uses the broken people. That's where I was whenever it came to football. You know, I was always the last guy to get picked. I wasn't all that great at it. Baseball wasn't so good. But I tell you, Red Rover, Red Rover, man, I was the first one, man, because I was going to break through that line. And so, you know, if I was going to put together a team, I'd put together the best. But it never ceases to amaze me that God just uses people of brokenness and humility to accomplish his plans and purposes. And that's what we see in the book of uh, Ruth, that God just uses her in spite of her circumstances. You know, there's no part of our life that is hidden from God. God knows everything that there is to know about all of us. And that's great news because it's there we're really able to find out and experience his love and his grace. And that's what we find in the book of Ruth. You know, just a story of grace and love and God's redemptive plan as it works its life out in the life of this Moabite woman. I absolutely love the book of Ruth. It was one of the first books I really had the opportunity to do an in-depth study on. When I became a, uh, uh, when I started going to the church, I, I thought the Bible was written in Latin. I mean, I, I grew up. You know, people spoke Latin. I knew people that studied Latin. I had the Latin Vulgate. We had the Latin Mass. And, and so when I first became a believer, I went off on a quest to find a, a study Bible that I could read. And I was in the store looking for a Bible, and a guy walks up, can I help you? Yeah, I'm looking for a Bible. He goes, what are you looking for? I said, well, I'm not sure. I'm looking for one that was, you know, was close to the original language, the Latin. 
He kind of looked at me and he goes, Latin? I said, yeah, that's what the Bible was written in, right? And he said, no, man, it was written in Hebrew and Greek. I was like, really? You know, if you didn't know that, you heard it here first. But, man, when I found that out, it was just like a shock for me. And so I soon found myself in seminary and, you know, studying languages. I absolutely fell in love with Hebrew. And the uh, book of Ruth was one of the first books that we went through. We did a word-by-word study on the book of Ruth. And I got a confession to make. I almost didn't pass Hebrew. It was a hard language. I know they say English is tough. But, man, it was a hard language. But through this process of looking at these words and doing this study, I absolutely fell in love with the book of Ruth. It's a romance story about God, his care, his compassion for his people, and it's all displayed through the life of Ruth as we see her growing up. And so, uh, you know, as much as I'd love to take you through uh, an hour and 20 minutes sermon word by word in Hebrew through the book of Ruth, um, I can't do that. I've got to do it 30 minutes in English. So um, if you would, turn with me for a moment to the book of Ruth. It's uh, right there at the front of your Bible. It's uh, eight chapters or eight books in. We're going to be looking at the book of Ruth. And uh, if you brought a Bible with you, go ahead and turn with you there because we're going to do a little bit of reading through these passages and uh, so you can just kind of glean some of the things that God has for us this morning. But beginning in chapter 1, it opens up with this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man from Bethlehem in Judea, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And so we've got these people in Judah. Uh, there's this famine. Um, they're struggling. And, and, he, and this guy takes his family into the land of Moab. And the man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites uh, from Bethlehem, Judea. And they went to Moab to live there. Now, Emelech, Naomi's husband, after they got there, he died. And, em- and Naomi was left with her two sons. And then they went off and they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And after they'd been there for about ten years, both Malon and Kilion died, and Naomi was left there without her two sons, without her husband, and no one to provide for her. And so this is kind of where the story opens up as we look at Ruth's life. You know, it's by looking at Naomi. You know, it's a famine. The whole family moves into this land of the Moabites. Her husband takes them from home and moves them into the land of their enemies. And then he dies. And then the two sons that are there, they go out and they they start mixing and intermarrying with these Moabite women and they get married and then they bring these two Moabites home and they're living with Naomi. And then both those sons die. And so then Naomi's got these two Moabite daughters-in-laws with nobody to provide for her and this is where the story story ends. And so, you know, it's kind of where it begins. And, you know, as I look at Naomi's life, I I can't think, man, if I was there... And I was in her shoes. I'd be looking for a way to get out of this mess. And that's exactly what she does. In verse 6, it says she heard uh, while she was in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of her people in Judah by providing food for them. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return from home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living, and she set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And then as soon as she got on the road, as soon as they leave, she stops. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. In other words, thanks, but leave. And when Naomi says this, they start to cry. Naomi said, Look, return home, my daughters. Why would you want to stay with me? Why do you want to stay with me? you want me to get married again and have another husband? And even if I was married again right now, are you really going to sit around and wait for them to grow up and be born? It says, uh, would you remain unmarried for them and wait? And so we get a real glimpse into Naomi's attitude towards her daughters-in-law here. It's almost as if she's saying, look, 
you don't care about me. All you really want from me is some more husbands, right? And so she's, she kind of confronts them with that, and we get a real glimpse in her heart towards her attitude towards Ruth and Orpah. You're using me. All you want from me is husbands. It doesn't even dawn on Naomi that either one of these women might even really care about her at all. And so she tells them to leave. And at this point in verse 14, they says they wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. In verse 15, it says this. Naomi says to uh, Ruth, Look, your sister-in-law, she's going back to her people and to her God. You go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And so when Naomi hears this, she was determined to let Ruth go with her, and she, you know, she stopped arguing with her. In verse 19, it says, The two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived at Bethlehem, the people in the town recognized Naomi. Can this be Naomi? Verse 20, she says, Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. And so Naomi is so bitter. She's so bitter about her circumstances. She can't see what she's going back to. She can't see the love that Ruth has for her. And her circumstances have got her so bitter that she can't just see beyond what God wants to accomplish here. Naomi's name is translated, that means a person that's good-natured or pleasant, and uh, she is far from that. You know, she went away full and pleasant, but she came back empty and bitter. Call me Mara. It's God's fault. You know, it's so easy for us to get caught up in our circumstances, both good and bad. We can, we can get caught up in our circumstances. That can, bad that can be a distraction. And when things are good, we can forget about God, and that can be a distraction. And so our circumstances really uh, can be uh, interfere with our ability to see what God has for us. And just like Naomi, it's just so easy for us to get discouraged or forgetful. You know, we can be working on our marriages, but it feels like it's never going to get better. We can be struggling with illnesses and, and just wonder, God, why aren't you making me well? Or why isn't this getting better? It's not going according to our plan. You know, we can struggle with being good parents, but our kids aren't turning out like we think they should. You know, we can hope the right job will come along, but it just doesn't happen. Or we can just be going along in life thinking things are great and completely lose sight of what God wants to accomplish in us. Sometimes things are good until Sunday comes. Sometimes we don't think about God until the weekend gets here. We can, we can get so caught up in our circumstances that we completely lose sight of what God wants to accomplish. And just like Naomi, we can lose sight of the fact that in the midst of our circumstances, we can find God's faithfulness. And that's the first lesson we're going to learn from the book of Ruth here as we look at her life. That in the midst of our circumstances, God is faithful. We see his faithfulness. This story began with Ruth and Naomi in this desperate, unpleasant situation with famine and death and despair. But it changes direction because of God's faithfulness. Because of God's faithfulness between the relationship with Ruth and Naomi and, be, and later because of a man named Boaz and Ruth. And we have two unlikely people at the beginning of the story here. We have two widows, an aging Jew and a young Moabite Gentile. And they're thrown together when things are bad. And this is where their journey begins. Back in chapter 1, verse 21. Listen to what Naomi writes. She said, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought this calamity upon me? 
Naomi is so bitter that she can't see what God wants to accomplish. And sometimes it's difficult for us to be able to see God's faithfulness in the moment. Sometimes it's not until we look back on our lives that we're able to see where God has, in fact, been faithful. For Naomi, this would become clear at the end of the book of Ruth in chapter 4 after God works through her life and through Ruth's and through Ruth and through Boaz. Ruth, the Moabite, who is far from God, gets brought into God's family. She gets married. She gives birth to a son. And Naomi, at the end of the book, is sitting there, and she's holding this baby. And in verse 14, and this is on your eye, it says, The women looked at Naomi, and they said, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you, has not left you without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in all Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. You know, sometimes we're not able to see God's faithfulness until we look back on our lives. And I've experienced God's faithfulness both in the moment and as I've looked back on my life as well. You know, our oldest daughter, Katie, um, two years ago, uh, fell while she was rock climbing, and uh, she broke uh, both legs and shattered her ankles, and I got that dreaded phone call in the middle of the night that a parent just doesn't want to get about their daughter being in a hospital. I can remember when I got that phone call, man, it's just like, oh, God, what are you doing here? And I can remember just praying and I was so thankful that she didn't die when she fell. And I was so thankful that she wasn't paralyzed. And then I was so thankful that she could walk when she was done. And I, as I look back on that, there was periods where I trusted God. I was thankful for God. But this just faithfulness of God, what are you doing here, was not something that I really got a glimpse of until uh, this last October when I was listening to uh, Katie addressing a, a women's ministry conference where she was sharing some of the things that God has taught her through her accident. As I was listening to her talk, I was thinking, man, whose kid is that? <laughs> Where are these words coming from? And as I listened to her share what she has learned about God, the closeness that she's had through her relationship with Christ to this, and seeing the blessing that she had been to so many others, that I was able to step back and I say, God has been faithful. You know, sometimes we don't see God's faithfulness until we look back. And sometimes we see it in the moment. You know, last week I was uh, at the funeral for Shar Rucky's dad. And in the midst of a funeral, right after Christmas, I saw God's faithfulness through their family members, through their lives. The peace that God just brought on that family, the peace that Char and Steve had as they were consoling family, the conversations that were going on with their family members, the memories that were being shared, families meeting together, grandparents and grandkids. And just as they talked through the memories of their dad, grandfather, and friend, I saw God's faithfulness right in the moment, in the midst of these circumstances. Because sometimes we see uh, God's faithfulness immediately, and sometimes we have to wait to look back for it. But here's the point. God's faithfulness is always present in our circumstances. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, and this is on your outline as well. He says, God will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. Not sometimes, not most of the time, all the time. God is faithful. And this is a promise to every believer today. God is faithful. It's the first lesson that we learn from Ruth as we look at her life situation and how God has provided her through this, through her and Ruth and Naomi. The first lesson that we learn through this book is that God is faithful. And the second lesson that we learn is that God blesses us in spite of our circumstances. We find God's blessing 
in our circumstances. You know, Naomi and Ruth, they are back from Moab. They have nothing or very little. No one to care for them or provide for them. They need some food. In uh, chapter 2, Ruth takes the initiative. And beginning in verse 2, it says, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go into the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor in. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and she began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And so this idea of going into the field to glean is a principle that God gives us back in the book of Leviticus. We have to understand what gleaning is as we see God's provision for her and just understand where this real blessing comes from. And Leviticus is one of those books. Has anybody read through Leviticus? It can be a, it can be a tough read. It really, um, if you really take the time to work through it, it really can be a good read. Um, it's really a good read if it's got principles in it that are to our benefit, right? Uh, but, you know, in uh, chapter 18, talks about the unlawful sexual relations. You know, it's uh, got some boundaries for how we should be living out our lives and relationships. And then verse, in uh, chapter 19, we see these various laws that God gives us. And this is where we find the law about reaping and gleaning, some guidelines for how we're supposed to harvest our lands. It says in uh, chapter 19, verse 9, when you reap the field of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field. Don't go over the vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen, but leave them for the poor and the alien, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, when you go out to cut your barley, leave some. Don't go all the way to the very edge of the field. Leave some there so that people that are in need can come along and get them. Don't go over your field the second time. Just go through, cut it, stack it, and leave the rest. When I first moved here, uh, uh, we moved across the street, and uh, Tom was harvesting his uh, corn crops. And uh, I I remember thinking, okay, when he gets done, Thanksgiving's coming, maybe I can find a a piece of corn out there and you know, maybe make a, make a table decoration or something. I remember walking out there. I could not find one piece of corn. They had this machine. It goes through, man. It gets every single piece of corn. And it goes all the way to the edge. That's not gleaning. That's what God says. Don't take everything out of the field. Leave some there so that Richard can come get a table decoration for his table. <laughs> this idea of cutting barley is so important. This is kind of a picture of what it might look like when they got done. They're supposed to go through the field. They're supposed to cut the barley down. They stack it up into what's called sheaves. And then they're supposed to leave some of the cut barley just kind of through the field. And they're not supposed to go all the way to the edge. And so what happens is Ruth goes out to pick up some of this leftover barley straw. And so she might come back with a, you know, a handful of straw. And, and that's how it was going to provide for her family. So Ruth goes out to work. And beginning in verse 4, chapter 2, um, while she's out there working, it says this man named Boaz arrives from Bethlehem. He grieved to the harvesters. Lord be with you. Lord be with you, they replied. And then he looks over and he sees uh, Ruth. And he says, who is that woman in the field? The foreman said, she's a, a Moabitess who came back from Moab with, with Naomi. She asked if she could blame and gather among the sheaves, and so we let her. And she's been out there working from morning until now, except for a short, a short rest and shelter. And so Boaz walks up to Ruth and says, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Stay in my field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with me and stay with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after those girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And wherever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. At this, she bows down with her face to the ground. Why have I found such favor in your sight? Boaz says, I have been told about all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. 
and how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and you came to live with the people that you did not even know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. And then she says, can I continue to find favor in your sight? May you continue to find that favor. You have given me comfort. You have spoken kindly to your servant, though I did not have a standing among your servant girls. And then Boaz says, come to her. You know, dip your bread, dip it in the wine and the vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. And as she ate, she went off. She had uh, plenty left over. And then in verse 15, I love this verse. As she got up to leave, she goes to glean again. Boaz gives orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, even if she goes in the middle of the harvest, don't embarrass her. Leave her there. Let her go. In fact, pull some of the stalks out for her. Pull them out for the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. Don't you just love the imagery of God's provision? Now, don't you just love this? This is not just a blessing. This is abundant blessing. You know, Boaz says, just get in there and get it. And he not only provides for her needs materially, but he also provides for her needs from an emotional perspective in terms of who her identity is. Our compassion team has uh, been reading a book called When Giving Hurts. And it talks about poverty in the U.S. And when we think about poverty or people in need, we have a, you know, a tendency to think in terms of food, water, shelter, stuff. It's typically a materialistic view of what poverty is. But it was an interesting read because it goes on to say that if you'll talk to people that are in need, what they need is not just the materialistic stuff, but they're looking for a job because they want to provide for themselves. They're looking for dignity. They don't want to be looked down upon. They want to be in relationship with others. And people that are in poverty find themselves estranged. There's a material need, but their biggest need is really to be in community and in relationship with others. And that's exactly what Ruth finds here in this home under Boaz's roof. She's covered under God's blessing. She's a contributing member as one of Boaz's servants. She has respect and she has standing in the community. And that's one of the things I love about biblical community. No matter where you are, we want you to be a part of what God has for us as a family. And so sometimes it's so easy to forget that this blessing is not just during times of need, but God sometimes overwhelmingly blesses us so we can be a blessing to others. You know, Ruth is blessed, and then she becomes a blessing to Naomi. Listen to what happens in verse 17. So Ruth gleans in the field until evening, and then she threshed the barley she had gathered. It amounted to about an epitaph, which is about eight gallons. Threshing is beating the barley off of the stalks, and so instead of having this big bundle of stalks, what you end up with is this little handful of barley seed, and she has about an epitaph, which is about eight gallons of seed, and she carried it back to town. And her mother-in-law saw how much she had gleaned and gathered. And then she also brought and gave out what she had left over to Naomi. She's expecting her to come back with this handful of stocks, and what she ends up coming back with is this huge bushel of barley grain. Her mother-in-law said, where on earth did you glean today? I mean, this is not just gleaning. What on earth has God done? God has blessed Ruth so that she can turn around and be a blessing to Naomi. A blessing is passed from one person to another. A blessing is received from one person to another. Boaz is blessed, and he passes it to Ruth. Ruth is blessed, and she passes it to Naomi. See, God blesses us in the midst of our circumstances, not just for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of others. Because our first 
is that our first thought to share when we have an overabundance? I mean, if we're expecting 10 and we get one, do we put that on the shelf? Do we save the one for later in case we need it, or do we have to look for somebody to give it to? You know, I'd like to think that if I was Naomi, my first thought would have been to share my barley with my mother-in-law, <laughs> right? And that's exactly what Ruth does. How do we share our stuff? How do we share our, our overabundance of food? How do we share of our overabundance of wealth, our money, our time? How do we share our faith? We've been entrusted with this message, this hope of the gospel, and what do we do with that? In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, this is our memory verse for December. Does anybody have it memorized? We've got to get this memorized so when Pastor Dan stands up, you know, he can say, he can say oh, we all say yes. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, it's for by grace that you've been saved through faith not by works, so that no one can boast. You know, we know that we're saved from our sins. God saves us. He saves us from our sins. We're saved by God's grace. We're saved by faith. But for what purpose? For what purpose does God call us into this relationship with himself? Let's look at this next verse. Paul writes in verse 10, We are God's workmanship. We are created. We are saved and created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. God blesses us. He calls us into a relationship with himself, not just for our benefit, for for the benefit of others. God wants to call you out of whatever circumstance you're in. He wants to bless you because he has a plan for your life and a purpose for your life and for the lives of the people around you. In the midst of our circumstances, we can find God's faithfulness and God's blessing. Just a few moments, um, we're going to watch a video testimony of where God has been at work in the life of someone at Springbrook. And after the video is over, um, we want to give you a few moments to share um, where you have seen God's faithfulness and where you have seen um, God's blessing in your own life. It doesn't have to be a long story. It doesn't have to be complicated. Just a short testimony of where you have seen God's blessing and faithfulness. I want to give you a few moments to think about that. I'm telling you about it now so you have a few moments to think about a story that you might share. Just something that you could thank God for that would be a blessing to others because there is power in a story. As you read through the book of Ruth, this is a story and it is powerful and it's life transforming. So we want to give you a few moments, not to just, you know, to be powerful and life transforming, but just to share a testimony of where God has been at work. So I'll give you a few moments to think about that as we look at this last lesson from Ruth's life third lesson that we see is that in the midst of our circumstances, we find God's redemption. We find God's redemption. At the beginning of chapter 3, Naomi is starting to get a glimpse of uh, what God is doing. And uh, really, for the first time, she starts to help Ruth out. Uh, Beginning in chapter 3 of verse 1, it says, One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her daughter, uh, her daughter-in-law, Shall I not try to find you a home? for where you will be well provided for. That's a far cry from where she was at the beginning, right? Just go back to your people and your God. Now she stops and she says, Hey, look, should I not try to help you find a home where you're going to be provided for? Is not Boaz, with whom the servant girls you have been hanging around with, are kingsmen? Is he not one of our family members? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash yourself in perfume. Wash, put on your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place that he's lying, and then go over and then cover his feet and lie down at his feet, and he will tell you what to do next. And so she does this. When Boaz has finished eating and drinking, and he was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. 
Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. In the middle of the night, something startles him. He wakes up and he says, who are you? And then on verse 9, and this is on your outline as well, she says, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are my kinsman redeemer. You know, Pastor Dan talked about what a kinsman redeemer was a couple weeks ago with Tamar. But, you know, in summary, it was at a time during Israel, during this time, everyone in Israel owned a piece of property. They owned some land. And God gave them this kinsman redeemer law that did two things. First of all, it protected families from losing their land and not being able to get it back. It kept the land in the family. And the second thing it did is it protected widows from poverty. If a man died and left a widow with no sons or no means of support, then this Redeemer, the Redeemer law kicked in and it said the nearest relative had the responsibility to buy back the land and marry his widow and support her. And then if the nearest relative refused, what would happen was the next closest relative would take on the role of kinsman Redeemer. And that's exactly what happens with Boaz. He's not the first in line, he's the next in line. The first in line, the first kinsman Redeemer, doesn't want to bring Naomi and her family in because of the risk that it would propose to his other family members and to his other property. And so he rejects the offer, and Boaz jumps on it. Boaz says, I'm going to step in. I'm going to be her kinsman redeemer. And then beginning in uh, chapter 4, in verse 9, it says this. Boaz announced to the elders and to all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi, all the property of the Limelech, Kilian and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my own wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that the name will not disappear from among his family or among the town records. Today you are my witnesses. You know, sometimes I wonder, you know, you never hear from Orpah again. Orpah made a decision up front to go back to her land and her God. Through Naomi's faithfulness towards God's call in her life, she gets to be a part of the genealogy in Jesus' line. And it's just to me, it's just a, it's the beauty of the story of redemption and how God brings her in is absolutely fascinating. And so he says, he says this, and all the elders of the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the whole house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrath and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And then in verse verse 13, this is on your line as well. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. She gives birth to Obed. Obed would become the father of Jesse, and then Jesse would become the father of David. And so this redemptive work of the Lord is drawing Ruth outside their family into the family. And it's here that the story ends with Ruth. God has redeemed her. You know, to redeem someone means to compensate for their faults, their bad aspects. This Moabite woman was outside the family of God, not allowed to enter into the assembly. There was something missing from her life. And God redeems that. You know, to redeem something means to compensate for their faults. He compensates for that. Is she still a Moabite? Yes. She's still a Moabite, but God has taken the life of this woman that at one point was an enemy and brought her in to the family. And our situation today is not much unlike that on Ruth's. God is perfect, and we are not. We are separated from God, and we also 
need redemption. The Bible teaches us that we have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. God is perfect and we are not. And as a result, we're separated from Him from birth. We're outside of His perfection. And the significance of Christmas was that God came down into this mess to rescue us from this separation. That through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, we could be saved, we could be redeemed, which is why these next passages are so significant. First Peter writes this. Peter writes in, in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, you have been made perfect. You have been redeemed. Are we still sinners? Yes. Are we still fallen? Yes. But we've been redeemed because through Christ, God has made an allowance for compensation for us to be in His presence. And so this idea of being redeemed is critical to understanding the basics of the Christian faith. Do our lives change? Yes. We become more Christ-like? Yes. But we have got to experience and understand the importance of redemption. God is faithful. God blesses us for His purposes, and He redeems us for His purposes. That's one of the key lessons that we can learn from Ruth's life. In Colossians 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says this, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And so this morning, as we come to this passage, we understand that God is faithful. We understand that God can bless us. And we understand that God redeems us. But I want to ask you this morning, are you experiencing these things in your life? Have you experienced the blessing? Have you experienced the forgiveness? Have you experienced his redemption? I want to share a video with you. It's a testimony of somebody that has experienced these things here at Springbrook. We're going to come together in just a few moments and share some of the things that God's done in our lives. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. But would you watch this uh, next video with me? I'm 45 years old. Uh, originally, I'm from uh, Detroit, Michigan. I've been going to Springbrook since October 28th. Well, I am uh, one of seven children from a broken home. I uh, was raised by my mother uh, in the inner city of, uh, in Detroit uh, called Highland Park. Um, I graduated from high school in 1985. Um, after graduating, I realized I was the only Caucasian student of over 400 students. At the age of 12, I accepted Jesus into my, into my life as my Lord and personal Savior. Ten days after turning 14 years old, my father was killed in a fire. Growing up in the city of Highland Park, um, at one time it was the home of the Fort Assembly Plant uh, Chrysler headquarters. Um, back in the uh, 60s and 
in the 80s, the automotive industry had seemed to have uh, moved out of the uh, city of Highland Park and gangs and the drug dealers moved in. It was uh, very violent. Uh, there was no sense of security, especially without a father figure. The role that God played in, in my youth, he provided me a place to escape and that was church. He, um, he got me involved in meeting new friends and uh, socializing with people that were involved with church. It got me uh, away from the, the violence on other streets. Some of the challenges and some of the pain and suffering that I had dealt with as a child and how it's affected me as an adult, especially as being a father, has been very challenging. I tried to be the father that I didn't have, and that's very challenging in itself. I found Springbrook um, one morning. I had been going through a lot of um, challenging times. I was uh, injured at work. I've uh, injured my, my neck severely, and I got up one, one morning out of bed around 2 o'clock, which is only normal for me dealing with what I've been dealing with. and. It was like God was talking to me, as if I have a plan for you if you just let me in. And I knew if I didn't change things, things weren't going to change. That Sunday morning, I got dressed and I told my wife I was going to church. And I arrived at Springbrook, excuse me, Springbrook, and I've been attending ever since. The impact that Springbrook has had on me since the, the first time I arrived is the people are so friendly and so accepting. They pray with me, they pray for me. You know, I feel God's strength by coming into a Springbrook. You know, it wasn't just, you know, the injury that brought me to my knees. It was me knowing that I wasn't being the right father I could be, the right husband I should be. I just want you following the path that God likes for me. I want to be a man of God. You know, this church is a beautiful building, but it's the people inside that actually make it a church. God is my forgiver, and he has forgiven me for all my sins. You know, this morning, we are, we are all um, either a Ruth or an Orpah. You know, we can choose to do things our own way. We can choose to run things our own way. And that's what Orpah did. She went back to her land, to her God, to her people, and she chose to do things her way, and we never heard from her again. She's mentioned twice in the Bible. It's in those passages. And then she just kind of Never heard from again. And then we can choose to be like Worth, who says to Naomi, I am going to go to your land. I want to be with your people. I want to be with your God and make that decision to, to be a part of God's family. And so this morning, as it comes to understanding our need for a relationship with Christ, we are all either roots or orphans. Some people have already made their decision. Some people have not. But this morning, I want to ask you, are you like a Ruth or an orphan? Have you experienced the blessing? 
of being a part of having a relationship with Christ? Have you committed your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you identified with Him through baptism? Are you growing in spiritual maturity in all matters of faith and practice? And are you experiencing the full blessing and fullness of faithfulness and redemption that is yours in Christ Jesus? Or are you doing things your own way? I mean, we have a choice to make here, just like Ruth. Um, it's my prayer that each of us would continue to be drawn closer to God. You know, God's Word does not come out empty and void. And I know, just as it did with Ruth, that God is prompting each of us to take steps forward on our spiritual journey. Every time I read through the book of Ruth, you know, I'm, I'm more drawn towards this idea of compassionate and, and realizing that what I have is not my own. And so the Bible speaks differently to every one of us, but what is God prompting you in your heart to do this morning? There's a, there's a welcome slip on the inside of your um, bulletin this morning. I want to just encourage you that if you have questions about how to have a relationship with Christ, there's a place for you just to write that down somewhere. You can indicate that. If we can help you take your next step forward on your spiritual journey, whatever that is, um, I'd like to give you an opportunity to do that um, so you can be completing that. But we're going to spend the next few moments, and I just want to give you an opportunity to share where God has been faithful uh, to you in your life, where God has blessed you, maybe a story of redemption. So we're going to spend the next few moments um, doing that.